Join with me in asking for the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. Father, we come now to open your word to exposit it and explain it and really to see uh, what you desire for us to, uh, to learn uh, from the book of Acts. I ask, Father, that you would grant to me boldness and, and clarity, that you would remove uh, from me any fears or anxieties of preaching and speaking the truth, that you would help me and cause me, O oh God, to be faithful. I pray for your people as they listen, that you would give them the ears that they need to hear your word, that, Holy Spirit, you would um, just grant to them an understanding and a wisdom and a strength by your word. We ask for your blessing now on it. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we looked at Acts chapter 19. And in Acts 19, we said we, we came to a really a climactic battle in terms of the gospel coming against the Hellenistic religions of the world in Ephesus. And we noted how at that moment, uh, many years, about two or three years after Paul's ministry in Ephesus, this account that Luke gave was uh, the account of the consequence of the gospel some two or three years later. And we noted how there was a spiritual awakening in that city. And the spiritual awakening was not just the confrontation against these pagan religions and the truth of the gospel, which created a disturbance in that city, but the spiritual awakening even came upon the church itself uh, to such an extent that the church began repenting of its hidden sins and the church began to confess those sins and bring them out in the open. And so there was a, a great revival within the city of Ephesus as a result of the gospel. And so we ended last week looking at that riot in Acts chapter 19. And so before us now is Acts chapter 20, where Luke picks up here at the conclusion of the riot, uh, which developed. And initially, um, Paul had, I had, Initially, I had intended to go through the entire chapter of Acts 20, but I think uh, there's plenty for us to consider here in verses 1 to 16, and so I'd rather not rush through that too quickly um, and then have to rush through Paul's farewell address to the elders, and so we're picking up after the riot in Acts 20, verse 1, all the way through 16. So let us hear the word of the Lord. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. 
And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took him, and they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asus, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asus, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, when you read a passage like that, as, as I did this, uh, this week and was studying by it, uh, about it, you, you have to remind yourself of what the purpose of the book of Acts is in order not to get lost in all of the details of the passage, right? So a lot of details. He visited here. He went there. He traveled there. Lots of cities, lots of places. And if we're not careful, uh, those are good things to look at, and they're important, but if, we're, if, if I'm not careful to bring God's word to you, there's part of me that can go into all of those details and, and I think actually just miss the picture of what we're looking at. And so I want to remind you once again, as I've done before, of the, the great purpose of the book of Acts. And then I'll show you what I think Luke gives, why he gives us this passage. Okay, It's not just, it is details, but it's not just details. So first of all, we've noticed from the very beginning of our study at Acts that the, the ultimate purpose in Acts has been to, for Luke to record for us how the risen and the reigning Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, continued to grow and expand his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, in, a, in the largest, broadest sense, that's what the book of Acts is about. This is what Luke is telling us in this history. This is how Christ continues to expand and build his kingdom. The gospel, the gospel is that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come and has been inaugurated. And so the disciples were called to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is victorious, that Jesus is reigning, that Jesus is ruling, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that the forgiveness of sins is offered to all those who place their faith in him alone. That's the good news of the gospel. It's good news that through faith in Jesus, a sinner who is separated from God, can be reconciled to God. A sinner can be justified before a holy God. A sinner can be made acceptable and become saint, a saint of God and enter into God's kingdom. The only way for that to happen is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this gospel, as we've been seeing in Acts, is how Jesus Christ builds his kingdom. Wherever this good news is proclaimed and people come under the authority of Jesus' name, they receive the forgiveness of sins, they trust in his power to save, this is where the gospel is going and the kingdom is building. And so we've been seeing that broad picture and that broad message of the book of Acts. And Jesus says, he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is continuing to build his church today through the same message. So in one sense, Acts is our history, right? Acts is our history. 
It's how we as the people of God are here today. And so we've seen the church grow, God's kingdom expand through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the beginning of its reach to the ends of the earth. And Acts is going to take us all the way to Rome in chapter 28. Luke is going to show us how the gospel expanded not only into this pagan city of Ephesus with its temple given to Artemis and confronted the pagan religions, but the gospel is also going to eventually go to Rome, which is what Jesus told Paul would happen. And so in that sense, when you look at these first 16 verses of chapter 20, it's a transition for Luke. So look back at Acts 19.21, and you will see that the Apostle Paul says that he, in the midst of his ministry at Ephesus, Luke says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so in one sense, Acts 20, 1 to 16, is a transition into that final chapter, so to speak, of Paul's life. All of the missionary journeys he's been on, all three of them, are going to ultimately culminate now from this point on into Luke telling us how Paul ultimately is brought to Rome by God to bear witness to Christ. So it's a transitional section. Now, I say that because there's something else in this chapter that I don't think Luke simply wants to give us a bunch of information about the transition. I think there's something important in this entire chapter that Luke wants us to see. Because in the ultimate purpose of Acts, we can see that there's application to us in the sense that Jesus did all that he did by the power of small and insignificant people. And he wants us to think in terms of drawing us into that redemptive work and inviting us to come to Jesus for the powerful outworking of the gospel in, in the broadest sense of the purpose of Acts. He wants us to continue on in the work of Jesus by the power of the Spirit to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's an application for us. But here in this section... I think Luke has specifically focused our attention on the life and the ministry of Paul as God's chosen instrument commissioned by Christ to carry the gospel before Gentiles and kings, even though he's suffering so that we might learn from his example as well. And here in Acts 20, Luke gives us what I think is the most intimate glimpse into the pastoral heart of Paul. He gives us this perspective on Paul in this chapter that really helps us to see what, how Paul viewed the church and what he felt about the church and, and how, he, how he experienced his relationship to the church. Paul is given to us here as a model by Luke, as one who cares deeply for the church that he is willing to suffer for. And if we are to carry on the work of the gospel, if we're to carry on the commission to take it to the ends of the earth, there is a sense in which when we look at God's church that we are a part of, that we have been redeemed to be a part of, that we need to have this kind of heart and thinking about the church. The church for Paul, as we're going to see, is not an organization. The church is not some kind of ministry that Paul is engaged in. The church is a blood-bought people that Christ shed his blood to redeem, that Paul is a part of, and that he seeks to encourage 
Here's a couple of ways that Paul thought about the church. Remember our Lord said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Paul did that. And when Paul thought about the church, here is what he wrote to the church in Philippians 1, 3 to 7, for example. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8, Paul says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 2 Corinthians 7.3, he tells the believers, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul speaks of the daily pressure of, on him and his anxiety for all the churches. And finally, one more, Romans 1.11, Paul speaks of his longing to be with the believers in Rome, to serve and to strengthen them. In this Acts 20, verses 1 to 16, I think what Luke is drawing out here for us, before we get into that farewell address, which we'll look at next week, is he's drawing this out for us by his use of this word encouragement in that section. So I want you to notice there, this is how Paul thought about the church and his purpose. In, in that section, you'll see that three times this word encouragement is used. It's used twice in verses 1 to 2, and then it's used a third time in verse 12. Now, that word says comfort, but it's the same word in all three places. One to two, it's the word um, parakaleo. Um, it's the same Greek word, encourage, encourage, and comfort. And you can notice that one and 12 is bracketed in. So, so everything within verses one to 12, the whole emphasis of Luke in that section is the fact that the Apostle Paul was an encourager in his heart. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, if you think about the word encourager, it's the, it's the same word that is used, the same root word is used of the Holy Spirit when Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our helper. So when Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our helper, he calls him the Parakletos, okay? So you have parakaleo, which is encourage, and the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. And it same root word of to call. And, and it means to call is to come alongside of. Parakaleo is to come alongside and to call and to exhort. And so the Holy Spirit, when Jesus says the helper is going to come to you, in John 14, 26, Jesus says, The helper, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, here's what he's going to do. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit is going to take the word of God. 
He's going to take what Jesus has taught, and he's going to bring it to your remembrance and encourage the saints, right? Jesus also said in John 15, 26, when the helper comes, the parakletos, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? Bear witness of me. And so the Holy Spirit, as the comforter given by Jesus to the church, is given to bear witness to Christ, to bring the words of Christ to our remembrance, to encourage and comfort us in the words of Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does through his word. He teaches the truth and he brings the truth to our mind. Now, when Paul is called an encourager here, in these verses, and Luke is highlighting this, we have to ask ourselves a question as God's people, because we're not living in these days, but we know from Acts that one of the things that is emphasized over and over and over again in Acts by Luke is that the word of God was what? Prevailing. That the word of God was what? Having its way. That the word of God was spreading. And so Acts is focusing on that word of God, the word of the gospel of Christ, spreading and growing and expanding. And so when he's talking about Paul being an encourager, I, I thought about it like this in, in terms of the, the context of the day and age in which we live. And, and I... And I realized this because my, my responsibility is to be, a, is to be a, a pastor and an elder to, to help you grow, right? This is what the Lord has given me the opportunity and privilege to do. But I, I realize that in our day and age, when you think about encourager, what do you, what comes to your mind or the mind of the people in the world? I think it's this positive talk. That's encouragement, right? To leave you with positivity, to feel good, to, to feel good about your life, to feel good about the things that God is doing and how you've been blessed. And, and when people go to a church, they want to leave feeling encouraged and positive. That's kind of one of the ways we think about it. We also think of encouragement in terms of entertainment. If you, ever, if you ever went to a movie and you left the movie or whatever it is and you go, man, you just feel uplifted and you feel good. And, and, and a lot of reasons why is because you've been entertained. It's been an emotional ride. It's, it's been an experience. And so you leave that experience with all of the feelings and the emotions and the rising up, and you leave it and you think, man, that's been, that was so encouraging. It was so encouraging because you left feeling entertained and you left feeling pleased. I, I think Paul, when he looked at his responsibility from the ch to the church, he even says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. Look at this. Look, you can look there if you want. In, I'm sorry, yeah, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. When Paul thinks about the church and he wants to encourage them, and when Luke references his encouragement, what he is referencing is the encouragement and the comfort, which is the same word, of God's word to them. This is why he can write to the church in Corinth, chapter 1. He, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, but here's the key, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When you think about the gospel, and you think about the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and you think about the way in which God encourages and comforts you, is it because Jesus makes you feel good? Is it because Jesus entertains you? Or is it because, at the end of the day, you are comforted by the fact that your sins have been paid for, that you are justified before a holy God, and that Jesus Christ has paid the punishment that you deserved on the cross. And is that not the comfort of all comforts? Is that not the way in which you are encouraged in this life? No matter what you suffer, no matter what you go through, the gospel says that because Jesus Christ has paid your sin in full on the cross, that you will live with him forever. That's the comfort of who Christ is and what he has done. This is why Paul, he can also say to them in verse 8 of that same chapter, 2 Corinthians, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, that he will deliver us again. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the gospel, beloved, is the encouragement and is the comfort. And when we are in Acts and we see Luke emphasize that the apostle Paul, after Ephesus, went to the churches to encourage them, we can know that the way that the Apostle Paul looked at his ministry to encourage the people was to remind them again and again and again and again and again. And one more time again of the gospel. Of the gospel. There is no encouragement apart from the gospel. Now, so Luke says, back in Acts 20, Paul, in great danger, suffering considerable distress for the sake of Christ in Ephesus, Luke says, after the uproar ceased, Paul was so concerned about their well-being that he sent for the disciples from Ephesus to do what? In order to encourage them. He then goes back through the region of Macedonia, Luke says, and encourages them before heading to Greece. Then he spends three months in Greece. I would presume he's encouraging them. Then a plot's made against him there by the Jews, and he's forced to leave, and he heads back through Macedonia. Ultimately, he arrives in Troas, and so we see that he met with many disciples from the various churches that he'd planted, so they're a picture of the fruit of his labor. You see Sopatar from Berea. Uh, Luke was with them. Um, you'll notice verse 5, the us phrase comes back into play. So Luke is with them, Sopatar from Berea. Then Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Then you have Gaius from Derby. You have Timothy, who might have been from Lystra or Derby. 
You have Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. And all of these meet Paul in Troas where they stay for seven days. And so Luke is saying, look at the, the picture of the fruitfulness of the labor and the, of the gospel and the unity of the gospel and the church. All of this Luke is putting before us. And then he says in verse 7 that on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, what did Paul do? Paul talked with them. Again, coming together to remember Christ, to remember the gospel, to speak of Christ and his gospel. Paul encourages them by celebrating the Lord's table together and having a meal together. And Paul spent his time talking to them so fat, so long, in fact, that Luke says he prolonged his speech or his sermon until midnight and then ended up conversing with them in verse 11 until daybreak. So all of this encouragement is word-based Paul gives to the church, and that's the heart of a, of a pastor. That's Paul's aim. That's the model Luke puts before us. I think many would have left by this time if they were Paul, after everything he went through. But he stays and he suffers because he wants to preach and point them to Christ. And he does until midnight. So you ready? You got 12 hours to go. No, I, I can't do that. I'm not the Apostle Paul. Um, I think I would have sat there too. I think I would have sat there till midnight with him. I think, I think I would have been there to hear the word of God expounded and explained. And it tells us something about Paul's focus. It tells us also something about the desire of those believers, doesn't it? Those believers desired to know Christ through the word of God. They spent their Sunday together being immersed in the word of God, and they were happy to do it. And it really makes me wonder, with us as God's people, to what extent is that our desire? To what extent is it our desire to know Christ more fully? I mean, when you look at it this way, they didn't have the New Testament then. So they only had what? They had the Old Testament. And what they had of the Old Testament was enough to make them say, I want to know Christ and see him in his word. And they spent time with Paul listening and learning and studying so that they might know him. They were word-centered, scripture-centered. That was their desire. And something tells me for us, man, there, there are some churches, like, we're, we're considered, like, long for a, a message. There's a lot of churches out there where the entire service is 45 minutes to an hour of, of singing praise music or whatever, right? And then 15 minutes of a little devotion, not even seeking to understand, not even seeking to look at a passage and to dig it out. It, it, it's just we've looked at Jesus and the gospel in our culture in such a way that honestly Jesus becomes a tag on for many people. And the gospel is a tag on. The gospel is something you just add at the end of the message to say, here, Here's Jesus, let's give him a nod as we worship together whatever it is we're worshiping. But that's not what we see in the New Testament church. They were word-centered. They desired to be people of God's word. And so then Luke tells us what is kind of tragic, but it's also given in a kind of a humorous way, is that 
there's a young man named Eutychus. And his name, ironically, means fortunate. I say, I say ironically because Luke tells us how Eutychus, the fortunate one, was sitting at the window. He's probably trying to get a cool evening air because the environment there, it's late, lanterns are on, Luke tells us. It's probably smoke, it's hot, it's stuffy. Um, no, I'm not going to say it, never mind. I was going to say, if you've ever been to a Romanian family gathering, you kind of get a sense of what this is like. It's hot, it's stuffy, everyone's close. And so he's sitting by the window, and he sinks into a deep sleep. And Luke says, Paul talked still longer. Right? He kept going. And it's not a, he's not rebuking Paul. He's just saying it was longer and longer. And so Eutychus falls out of the window, and he falls three stories down, and he dies. It's a good thing we're on the first floor. Right? No one's falling out here. So Eutychus falls out, and he dies. And the reason Luke can tell this serious event in kind of a humorous way is because the fortunate one, Eutychus, who had an unfortunate fall, ultimately has a fortunate outcome. Because the accident provides the occasion for God to do a miracle by Paul. This is what Luke wants us to see. Some will say Eutychus didn't actually die, and they'll say that, oh, the term taken up dead with Paul's statement that his life is in him suggests that Paul was just saying, don't worry, he's still alive, he hasn't died. However, the most natural way really to read the text is to assume and presume that Eutychus actually died and was brought back to life. He was dead, and now he's alive, not still alive. Luke, being a physician, would have noted otherwise, I think. And what is more, it's the reaction of all the people, including Paul. If the boy had fallen and was not resurrected, it would have been strange, I think, to have a child nearly dead, likely bleeding, broken bones, lots of crying, panic, sadness. And then you notice Luke says, and then they went back up and they celebrated the Lord's table, and they ate. And then they kept conversing until daybreak. Like, that's not how I would picture it, right? That, that's not what I would do if my kid fell out the window. And so he died. He died. He was dead. And Luke says that Paul went down. And then he, he, he says he went down and he bent over him. What is that picture in your mind? If you, if you know your scriptures, that should bring to your mind the resurrections of Elijah and Elisha. Listen to this. Elijah raising the widow's son, 1 Kings 17, 21 to 23, says, Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again and revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Elijah raises a Shunammite son in 2 Kings 4, 32-34. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And so here, Eutychus is taken up dead, but Paul, 
went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Do not be alarmed, for he is alive. And they ultimately took the youth away alive. And then what does Luke say? And they were not a little encouraged. They were not a little comforted. God used this tragedy so that he might use Paul to encourage these saints. This life is a gift of God. They see it. And more than that, what does it point to? It points them to the new life available through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It reminds them of the fact that they have been raised from the life, from the dead, to a new life in Jesus Christ. This is what this encouragement is given to them for. And so that's why Paul could write to the church in Colossians, in Colossae, in chapter 3, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Lift your eyes up, beloved. In other words, look, be encouraged by what Christ has done for you. And so that's Paul's heart. That's what we're to see. That's his aim, to encourage people by his word. Now, I'm going to close with this kind of a more of a practical application for you in this church, beloved. And it's a, it's a conviction for me. And I say this because as a congregation, it's important for you to note this. It, it gives us a mindset of Paul toward the church, and it's how you should look at those who are put up as elders or deacons in the church. This should be their mindset, because there's one sense in which you can look at you can look at 1 Timothy 3. You can look at um, the passages that speak about 1 Timothy 3 and uh, 1 to 7 and 8 to 13, where Paul addresses the qualifications for elders and deacons. And someone can have those qualifications, but not really have a love like this for the church. This is, this is one of those things that belongs in the, in, the, in the heart of a man that is to serve in a church. And, and I bring this up because there's one kind of mindset in the church. And I remember, I remember I was stunned when I graduated from seminary. And I began to look at different churches and opportunities to serve and I was struck by how many churches emphasized as of the first importance that a pastor would be able to structure and lead an organization. I'm not kidding you. Over and over and over again, this was the number one thing in these job, whatever. I hate that word. I hate, hate to that word. I shouldn't use it. I, I really dislike that word job as it relates to church but in any case this is this is what we're living in but here's how one church put it they want a pastor who can provide leadership and vision for the church direct plans for ministry and church growth and develop and fine-tune the church structure another church said we're looking for a servant leader highly relational with a clear vision for ministry he will need to have strong communication skills, a calling for developing new leaders, a passion for reaching the loss, and the ability to motivate others to be a part of God's plan. And then as a first importance, formal responsibilities, number one on the list, creativity to envision new possibilities for the ministry of the church, the ability to think strategically about opportunities and challenges, Identify and communicate clear goals and effective strategies to achieve them. The ability to recruit, lead, and manage church staff to fill the mission of the church. 
develop an effective ministry team with staff and lay elders, realistically assess situations and take appropriate actions, the awareness of and ability to employ current technology for effective ministry, I, I couldn't get that job, <laughs> shepherd and develop the board of elders and ministry leaders. Now, I get it, but I read that and I think this is a church that views itself as a organization. Doesn't it sound cold? Doesn't it just sound so matter of fact, so corporate? So corporate. I bet when you're at home, if you're being raised as a child, I bet that you really knew that your mom and dad loved you because your house was so organized. Didn't you? Didn't you just get that sense? I'm loved because the dishes are where they are supposed to be. I don't think so. I see. Jesus wasn't trained in being an encourager. He wasn't a skilled encourager, as if that's something you learn. The mindset of a pastor or an elder or a deacon toward the church is not that it's a job or that it's a ministry that he needs to grow, that it's some organizational entity that needs corporate leadership. No. If you see the church rightly, you see it as Paul did, which is you are among the church. You are redeemed with the church. You are part of the church. And your desire is that everyone would know Christ and know his word. And that becomes your primary emphasis. The foundation is laid. That's the Apostle Paul's mindset blood-bought people of the Lord Jesus Christ, not a ministry. And with that, I'll close with this, okay? Because this convicted me and I, when I thought about the church, and it actually comes from... It actually comes from a book that um, John Piper wrote, and it's called brothers were not professionals. And again, I'm bringing this up to you because in a couple of weeks, I'm going to put before you three men who are, who the desire is that they would become deacons in this church. So I want you to read 1 Timothy 3. Um, I want you to read about elders and deacons. And I'm going to, we're going to put these men before you so you can vote on them. And I want you to be praying for another elder for our church. Because Nick moved, and now the Lord has me here to serve you, and it's not good for me to do it alone. It's just not, it's not good. We, we, we need to be a plurality. We need to have, have men that can be elders. And I want you to read about elders in 1 Timothy and then begin praying and pray that God would rise up elders within our own midst or in some way bring an elder from the outside here. So we need to be thinking about the kind of man that should be doing this. In any case, not a perfect individual, and you already know that by looking at me, so we're not looking for perfection. We are looking for someone with a heart like this. And so here's what Piper writes in his book. It's a little, a little bit lengthy, but it's worth it. He says, okay, we pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet. It is not the mentality of the slave of Christ. Professionalism has nothing to do with the essence and heart of Christian ministry. 
The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there is no professional childlikeness, Matthew 18, 3. There is no professional tenderheartedness, Ephesians 4, 32. There is no professional panting after God, Psalm 42, 1. But our first business is to pant after God in prayer. Our business is to weep over our sins. Is there professional weeping? Our business is to strain forward to the holiness of Christ and the prize of the upward call of God, to pummel our bodies and subdue them lest we be cast away, to deny ourselves and take up the blood-spattered cross daily. How do you carry a cross professionally? We have been crucified with Christ, yet now we live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. What is professional faith? We are to be filled not with wine, but with the Spirit. We are God-bestowed lovers of Christ. How can you be drunk with Jesus professionally? Then, wonder of wonders, we were given the gospel treasure to carry in clay pots to show that the transcendent power belongs to God. Is there a way to be a professional clay pot? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus professionally, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies professionally. I think God has exhibited us preachers as last of all in the world, We are fools for Christ's sake, but professionals are wise. We are weak, but professionals are strong. Professionals are held in honor. We are in disrepute. We do not try to secure a professional lifestyle, but we are ready to hunger and thirst and be ill-clad and homeless. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, when we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the refuse of the world, the off-sourcing of all things. And then he says, or have we? That's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians about his ministry. And the point is, when you look at Paul and Luke looks at Paul and he sees the way that Paul loved the church, I just leave you with that question. Do you love the church in that way? And are you committed to knowing God through his word and willing to suffer for it for the sake of Christ? That's what a believer is. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the truth that is contained in it. Father, I I think each of us would confess here before you that we are not nearly as grounded and knowledgeable of your word as we ought to be. I think each of us here, Father, have so much to, uh, to learn and, and to grow in, not, not for book's sake, not for just knowledge, but that we might know you better. After all, Lord, we know that's why you have given us your word. That we might know you and walk with you and and have a relationship with you and, and serve you. That we might know Christ more fully and, and see your glory be displayed through your word. That we might come to have a right understanding of our place before you that our hearts would be lifted up to see your glory and magnificence, to see just how righteous and good and glorious and patient and loving you are and how we're not. And so your word, Father, is something you call your children to meditate on and to know. And so I ask that you would help us as a people here to be the pe- a people of your word that we would pour over it and we would not get bored by looking into it, Father, but that our hearts would be excited by it. So excited, Father, that we, like 
like Paul did, would spend two hours a day sharing the gospel if, if the opportunity availed itself to people that have not yet heard. And that when we get together, we would be a people who speak about your word and the truth contained in it. That we would be able to encourage one another by the, by the truth of the gospel. That we would come alongside one another with the comfort of the gospel and be able to speak kind and good and, and strong words to each other to keep us strong in Christ and faithful. Father, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the way you worked in his life and, and for what we can learn from him. So help us, Lord, to bring you glory and honor by being people of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's, let's sing together um, what I think is uh, an appropriate uh, hymn, and that would be him, um, to God be the glory, number 133, is, it, uh, no, that's not right, um, what's the number, I had it written down, Thir oh, I'm sorry, it's 13, I think, where is it, 19, 19, there it is, I knew it was in there, <laughs> okay, so, um, let's stand together and, and sing to God be the glory. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our victory, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, 
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Oh. 